Hello, and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. I am thrilled today to be joined by Kenneth Mohangi. Kenneth is the managing partner of East African law firm KTA Advocates, and he's usually based in Uganda. He specializes in intellectual property, technology, media, telecommunications, and dispute resolution. Kenneth represents and advises government and international entities such as the World Bank, World Economic Forum, Ministry of ICT, amongst many others. Kenneth is also a visiting lecturer of intellectual property and cyber law at Uganda Christian University and has also conducted lectures on cyber law at Makariri University Law School. Kenneth has also been recognized as a leading intellectual property lawyer by the World Trademark Review Guide and the WTR 1000. In 2020, Kenneth was recognized as Africa's Male Partner of the Year at the African Legal Awards. Kenneth, an absolute pleasure to have you with me here today. Tom, thank you so much for that very long introduction. Thank you. Well, I'd, you know, if people want to find out more, there is an even lengthier biography, including many more achievements on your <laughs> website. So so I felt like we were being quite humble, but <laughs> we're good. Listen, let's let's dive straight into some questions here. Now, I'm thrilled with the fact that East Africa seems to be abuzz with innovation. Young, hungry and driven African entrepreneurs are pushing boundaries in fintech, blockchain and AI solutions, to name a few. But such advancement doesn't come without risk. And given your specialism in intellectual property, I'm interested to hear your perspective on some of the IP pitfalls that you are seeing young and more established businesses falling into in this race for growth and innovation? Mm, that's a very good question. I think to start off, uh, to answer the question, I'd start with a quote from Chinua Achebe, where one of our greatest and most revered authors who said that, that the tales of a hunt will always glorify the hunter. And what that means is that whoever comes back to the village or you know, wherever they're coming from after the hunt, and uh, tells people, this is how I took down the lion. You know, I just caught it and rested it to the ground and, you know, it shook in its, in its skin. Sometimes that may be the truth. Sometimes that may be a lie. But basically, we've seen that that has also applied to our innovators in the sense that most of those innovators that we have don't document their processes that they use to be able to come up with their innovations or with their products. Now, eventually, the downside of that is that if a young innovator's product is taken or used or misused, it's very difficult to bring someone to book if there is nothing to document or show that this innovator, basically the process to show that on this data came up with this idea, expressed this idea in this form, and this is the final product we have now, and anyone that's trying to infringe on that product if infringed on a certain process, which is clearly documented. That is one aspect. The second aspect, of course, as well, is which, tied, which is tied into the second one, is very few innovators have an understanding of non-disclosure agreements or non-disclosure arrangements in the sense that most of them will go and pitch these ideas to companies or individuals who they feel will be able to invest. But lo and behold, these same individuals usually will turn out and take the idea for themselves, leaving the innovator biting the dust as the adage goes. So those two in my view, will be the biggest pitfalls, especially on the intellectual property side that innovators will face. 
in other instances uh, away from that as well is also the lack of knowledge of IP laws in the sense that we have in Uganda in particular in most Commonwealth countries there is a requirement for you not to disclose your patent uh, application or not to disclose your patent claim actually before you actually apply for the patent. Now, because many of these innovators are in social media and because either they want to show the public what they're working on or they're generally trying to look for funds, most of them will sub or some of them will end up showing or disclosing their claims before they actually submit the final application. And the effect of that is they will fail to get a patent application, especially if it's outside the window that the law has provided. In Uganda, the law gives a window about, I think, 12 months. I, I need to verify and check the law on that. But the window does exist in our law. And any disclosure outside of those windows, sorry, outside that window, will negate a, a patent application of an innovator. The other uh, challenges that I can think about are, are uh, innovators that are faced, of course, with things to do with like funding, uh, where they fail to get the funding that they will be able to use uh, to grow or to further or develop the actual innovations. And um, I think really looking at the IP side and the general side, those are the ones that I can think of unless you ask another more specific question. No, I think that's that's great insight. And, you know, IP issues really do give stark examples of that, the energy paired with the naivety, for want of a better word, of, of youth and innovation it really can come back to bite you. You know, the idea that getting so thrilled and excited about your, your innovation that not only do you not document the process, but you also uh, preemptively release it to market, both of those can really come back to damage you in the end. So look, we're, we seem to be advising on a more considered, careful and and uh, recorded process when it comes to innovation. So what, what are some of your top, tips here then when it comes to your advice to those seeking to balance and i think balance is the word here their business growth and product development with a healthy appreciation for ip protections what, what are some of the golden rules if you will hmm. i'd say really the biggest one is an understanding of the ecosystem that you work in and i use the term ecosystem on purpose in the sense that for any innovator any system or industry that you're working in will in most instances be connected and will, you will operate in an ecosystem. So any innovator, I think the first instance is not only understand your product, but understand the market where you want your product to be able to work or you want your product to be able to succeed. When you understand the ecosystem, chances are that you will tweak your product to fit a particular target demographic. And if it tweaks or if it fits that particular target demographic, then you may be able to succeed rather than be uh, uh, like, like so many innovators that create a product but find that the product has no place in the market, that is one. Number two, I'd also say really outside the law, understand your competitors, understand what already exists and answer the question, is my product adding to what already exists or is it revolutionizing what already exists or am I creating an entirely new product that is going to create a new trend or a new you know, service offering in the industry or market that are actually operating. And number three, which is the most important, and perhaps I do clearly understand that I am biased when I say this, but have a good lawyer. Have a lawyer that understands the business that you have. Have a lawyer that understands the product that you're trying to sell. Have a lawyer that understands the policy environment, which is 
Number four, but tied to number three, understand the policy environment or the laws that you're operating in, in the sense that sometimes innovators may release a very innovative product. Like so far, we have so many innovators that are innovating in blockchain, which is one of the aspects of the fourth industrial revolution. But many countries have now banned uh, products of blockchain, things like cryptocurrency. That is in Nigeria, we've seen that the regulators come out clearly and say that we will not regulate cryptocurrencies. Many other countries, Uganda is still on the fence. Uganda is still open, even for people that want to invest in that. But it would be such a travesty to have an innovator spend millions of dollars or millions of shillings innovating on a product that they then bring to market only to be told, wait, the law does not allow you to have this product. So I think those, in my view, would be the major, the major uh, considerations for that. And it's point one and point four that my COO, Wendy Bampton, would be very much aligned with. Wendy is always reminding us as a team, relevance before features, i.e. make sure that what you're producing and what you're innovating towards is going to be utilised, understood, um, and engaged with instead of just innovating for the sake of innovation. You can get as excited as you like about how cutting-edge, AI-driven, blockchain-protected your product is, but if it isn't going to be used and understood, it is an irrelevance. Um, and that's where those millions of shillings, as you just referenced, can go down the pan pretty darn quickly. Yes. Um, speaking of innovation and going on a slightly different track here, I know that you were heavily involved with the African Drone Forum back in 2020 when we were allowed to go to such events. So tell us a bit more about the event and your your input into it. You know, what were some of the key takeaways? And as a follow-up question, if you'll forgive me, is the deployment of drone technology going to continue in African markets? And even more importantly, are there signs of homegrown African drone technologies to help drive such growth? Yes, Tom. Oh, thank you for the question. You've made me really reminisce the days when you know we travel to these conferences. But yes, the ADF was the first of its kind. It was uh, the first drone forum in Africa, hosted by the World Bank, and it was in Kigali. And we had such a good time discussing with regulators all of Africa about uh, drone regulation and drone flight in general. Should drones be regulated independently? Should they uh, have uh, uh, their different models, uh, sui generis legislation? Or should the regulation of drones be, you know, does it fit under the current laws on aviation? And so we had so many participants from all over uh, Africa and uh, also Europe as well. Yeah, it was good, especially we saw the different drone technologies that have been deployed in Africa. And most of those, in my view, are very necessary than needed. And there's a company, one of them is Zipline, that was that's uh, that has uh, a drone facility in Kigali and one in Ghana, where they deploy drones to be able to to deliver blood and other essential medicines to heart-rich areas. And as for those of you that are listening in, Africa or Uganda in particular, although we have developed infrastructure, we do have certain areas because of our topography where it is difficult, even with the infrastructure in place, to be able to deliver certain supplies and certain goods. Now, that's where drones come in. Not So really, although you have uh, cars or you have boats, if you're in an island where these, these supplies can still be able to, to be delivered, 
drone technology provides a faster and perhaps more efficient and perhaps even cheaper way of delivering these uh, supplies or essential medicines to those that need them. So I feel that drone technology is very much relevant in the context of Uganda, in the context of East Africa, and in the context of Africa. And I think we're seeing a lot more companies coming up. We have the Infectious Diseases Institute of Makere that also has a drone project in Uganda. Um, and then you also have other entities that are coming up with drone projects, not only in health, but also in areas to do like with, with, uh, with uh, surveying and mapping. Uh, we've seen that happen. We've seen drones deployed in wildlife, um, where there's uh, an entity called CloudFlight, which actually helps to uh, use drone technology for wildlife conservation, in the sense that for most instances, especially in East Africa, you find that the wildlife will uh, share uh, borders with uh, human settlements. And sometimes those borders uh, will be crossed either by humans or animals. And if it's an animal that goes and tramples on a particular garden of a particular human being, in a particular area, and I've used so many particulars, but that's to really put things into context in the sense that these things happen. So when that happens, usually the locals in that area, of course, will try to defend themselves, especially if you're looking at a predator, or even if you're looking at an elephant that's going to destroy more than it needs to to uh, to use. I, I was fortunate enough to go to Macheson National Park uh, over the Easter weekend, and they showed me a tree that an elephant, that trees, not actually a tree, trees that one elephant had failed because they were trying to get leaves. So I looked at the damage of the trees compared to, you know, to the food that the elephant would have gotten. And, you know, and there is a very big disparity. But of course, these are animals enjoying uh, their wildlife, sorry, enjoying their, na their, their natural habitats. These are, these are animals enjoying the ecosystem that they live in. However, drones have been deployed to help such animals to stay away from areas that are populated by human beings. And the drone will hover around a particular area and sound an alarm that will scare the animals back to where they're supposed to be. And I found that really revolutionary. So in those instances, I do believe that drone technology has been deployed for good. Although I also do understand that uh, the East African market or the Ugandan market also has certain nuances that those investing in drone technologies need to understand. And sometimes these technologies may not apply lock, stock, and borrow, the way they would apply in a European market or even in an Asian market. And some of those considerations would be, for example, the type of drone. Uh, if you deploy a drone that can take, let's say, 200 or 300 kilograms, that may be overkill, especially regarding the cost and uh, whether our airspace is is uh, is uh, is uh, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, clear enough or is mapped enough to be able to prevent any issues that may arise if there are any other aircrafts that are using the same airspace. So with those considerations in mind, I do believe that the need outweighs the, the, the detriment in the sense that we do have drone technology deployed in East Africa and we will see more drones deployed in East Africa and in Africa. And I, for one, I am a proponent and uh, 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 one that is looking forward to seeing many of these technologies deployed in those particular areas and more. And I think you can count me in that that camp as a, as a real proponent of this. And certainly, I think the person whose job it might have been to try and scare off a uh, three-ton bull elephant uh, rather than a drone may well agree with us as well. And what I like even more, it's, the, it's, it's a real African dynamic where 
revolutionary technology is interacting with some of the most base components of the world and of nature. You know, something as, as technologically advanced as a drone being used to monitor and influence uh, a wild animal's feeding instincts. It's, it's, it's quite a cool dynamic when you look at just how far technology has come, but we're still trying to solve issues that have been a human issue for millennia. So it's 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 a real a real interest for me um, as well, and uh, look moving on to a different subject here, and this is something that's very dear to Africa Legal's heart. It, it's that of collaboration, and you know how keenly focused we are, Africa Legal, on driving collaboration across the legal services landscape in Africa. And you and I have spoken previously about KTA Advocates' own collaborative efforts, which are focused through the Amani IP network. Now, tell us a little bit more about the network, its goals, and your hopes for its future development. Uh, well, Amani IP network is really close to my heart, and it is... Uh... It is a network basically that we started when as KTA with other like-minded firms in the region whose aim or goal was to have a network or a synergy of core specialized IT and intellectual property law firms. So in Kenya, we have Kibunge and Company Advocates. In Tanzania, we have ABC Advocates. And we do have affiliations with other advocates that we as a money IP network still do collaborate with. And the reason why we started it we realize that the law now has has crossed borders. One of the days when you would have an instruction that would that would uh, where you wouldn't need one to understand or to know what is happening in the region. Well, how are my neighbors regulating or what is the policy? What are the policy considerations for this and that particular instruction? Now you find that if you are to advise a client, especially on an intellectual property matter, so usually most especially with the advent of the internet. And seeing that that same client will also have a digital or even a physical presence in other countries. It's important that you advise them with a cognizance that whatever advice you give, you will need to have some input from another jurisdiction. Now, that helps very much. And that's how we're able to collaborate on, on, uh, on uh, all the matters that we handle as a money IP network. But the second, which is tied to what I just mentioned, because many countries now will choose to have a digital presence rather than a physical presence. You'll find that although they will not have a physical office, their brand will be represented in that particular market, in that particular jurisdiction. And if that is the case, then every business would prefer to work with a firm that would that has a network or that has a presence in those countries where they're operating, or that will be able to guide the client to law firms that have the same the, the same culture, the same ethos as the one that we have here at KTA. Because at KTA, we believe that we exist to offer innovative service that nurtures relationships and impacts lives. And that means that wherever we go, we need to have a partner or law firm that has the same ethos and is able to advise a client the same way that we would. And that's really what the Money IP Network has done. And perhaps just to add and, uh, and, uh, and uh, conclude uh, answering the question that you have just asked, we also saw that although we have many networks that exist not only in Africa but all over the world, having a local network where the firms within East Africa, the ones that have birthed that particular network, we believe goes a long way in supporting Ubuntu, in supporting uh, regional integration. As we all know, East Africa 
operates as a block. Uh, it was sad when we saw Brexit, when we saw UK leaving the European bloc. I do believe that with where our economies are going, with where the world is going, it is important to synergize. I think that is the only way you can be able to have uh, knowledge transfers that don't that don't drain, where you, you have a knowledge transfer rather than a knowledge drain, because then you're operating within a block. Although you're sovereign nations, you share and collaborate easier because you have the same problems. And essentially, I do believe that it is that synergy that also leads to more development in that front. So Amani was started as, a, as, an, as an answer to that and continues to service our, our clients and, uh, and other stakeholders uh, in that manner. You are very much speaking my language, Kenneth. I think synergy and collaboration between um, careful collaboration, considered collaboration, as it sounds like you guys have been pursuing and who we, who we partner with, it's got to be the way forward. I feel like the, the flag planting method that, that Europe and the US experienced for so long when it came to law firm development, i.e. if you want to give legal service in a certain market, why on earth would you collaborate with a competitor? No, you have to do it yourself. Open an office, hire, staff up, or spend an outrageous amount flying partners in all the time. I just think it's so backwards when just parking the uh, the notion of competitor for a moment and considering the opportunities and the benefits that collaboration bring, it's going to allow the sensible growth of of law firms and legal advice across a massive continent, but without anyone having to, you know, take on the outrageous expense of trying to open their own offices in every jurisdiction in which they want to operate. And like you said, it matches with the fact that the unstoppable trend is borders are becoming less and less important when it comes to to African markets and East African markets in particular. So it's um it's a big thumbs up from me. Um, you must keep us up to date in how it develops and, and let us know, um, you know, if there are certain jurisdictions that you're really interested in hearing from other leading IP firms that could maybe join the network because that's what we're here for. That's what Africa Legal is all about. Let's connect the right law firms with each other. And I think that creates a real force to be reckoned with. And uh, look, as as is indicated by where you're recording this podcast uh, from, Kenneth, you're, you're quite the educator. And I know that you're sitting at one of the universities uh, at which you, you lecture as we record. And I know you're also heavily involved with judicial training in Uganda. Now, surely with technological and business advancements being so rapid in the region, the uh, judges need to have uh, all the help they can get in determining how and if to apply laws has never been greater. I mean, there's there's very little room for black and white interpretation of, of law anymore. So I'm interested in, in hearing from you about what has surprised you the most in your interaction with your own country's judiciary? And where do you see the greatest opportunity for development, growth and improvement when it comes to this judiciary as they deal with increasingly complex issues? Well, I think the biggest surprise has to be what I would call a positive surprise in the sense that the biggest surprise was the, was the, was the how I saw the judges were really receptive towards this knowledge. They want, they're thirsty to know how do we adjudicate over cases that have digital evidence? How do we adjudicate properly over cases that, uh, that where we may be able to receive and see witnesses 
uh, using our audio visual tools. I think for me that was the biggest surprise because I think the biggest mindset is the older that you get, the harder it is to learn. And if you look at the hierarchy of our courts, you have the high, you have the the lower courts, the high court, and the court of appeal and the Supreme Court, where the age range really will be, you know, minimum maybe fifty or sixty, and the judges will be within that particular age range. But you see judges that are eminent that have uh, that have practiced law for thirty or more years now coming up and you know uh, dissecting learning and sharing their views on how they handled cases that relate to electronic evidence or digital evidence for me that was the biggest surprise but then also uh, moving forward with that as well i think it's also that uh, our country as uganda there has been a push towards digital uh, you mentioned one of my titles or one of the portfolios i have that away is that i am uganda's representative to the world economic forum on the uh, and my particular portfolio is drones which we already spoke about before but the fact that uganda has intention to send a representative and i'll say that we also have committees that look at how uganda may be able to effectively harness aspects of the fourth industrial revolution for me that continues to not only surprise me because as i've said usually growing up the narrative you hear even when you're in uganda from western media and from our media alone as well is that we're people that are not receptive to learning is that we're people that are you know that are still operating in ages that perhaps passed before but now when i am the one that is conducting these trainings and you know seeing whatever is happening i see that that narrative isn't true that ugandans in particular are keen to learn ugandans in particular have embraced the fourth industrial revolution that's why we're voted constantly among the most entrepreneurial countries in the world and that is not a mistake because when you're here you see how technology has permeated every facet of society including our judiciary as you mentioned including our law society we're looking at electronic filing of documents electronic service of documents i know outside the law that uganda was if 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 it wasn't the first was among the first countries to attempt to tax digital assets to tax uh, to as as a way to be able to collect and add revenue because whether we like it or not although we embrace technology as a whole we need to split and see that we have technology that is essential for uh, for 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 human beings not only in Uganda but all over the world to live uh, comfortably at least but all this is a technology that is aesthetic in nature in the sense that it's more of a luxury that uh, social media is one of those although for some businesses social media is a tool that you can't divorce from their business but looking at it in the grander scale of things social media is also a luxury good now governments all over the world are grappling with how to make revenue or how to tax such you know such uh, products and Uganda was the first that came up and said but no we could tax this as over the as a over the top services sorry as yes as the over the top uh, services now we could have a longer discussion as to whether that tax has worked or not or whether we even needed the tax or not especially seeing as Uganda is only just embracing uh, social media is only just embracing uh, uh, all these new tools but i think it's a step in the right direction to say that look let's keep having an ongoing discourse a discussion as to how to effectively harness aspects of the fourth industrial revolution and uh, perhaps maybe tom um, one of the things that uh, that uh, we have moved forward especially regarding the field of intellectual property i was recently appointed to a committee that's looking at at uh, 
at how government at how our government in Uganda may effectively harness or utilize intellectual property assets and in particular assets that relate to patents patents that relate to patents that uh, that uh, that uh, relate to banana uh, products as we know banana is a staple food in East Africa in Uganda and there is a committee has been set up by government to discuss whether we could have patents that could come out of out of a product or out of uh, uh, something that we've used from time immemorial, from as far back as Uganda existed. So I think really that really just puts into context as to how intentional Uganda has been about leveraging the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, Kenneth, absolutely superb answer. Um, uh, Now, a couple of points that really spring up for me there is the banana point. I think it's just another example, and I alluded to it earlier. There is no better place than East Africa when it comes to seeing how cutting-edge technology is being leveraged to interact with, as you say, issues from time immemorial. Um, Now, the banana is not going anywhere when it comes to the staple food of the region. But the way that technology is being harnessed to make sure that the monitoring, the distribution, the sale of such produce is nothing but enhanced and made more efficient, it's it's a sight to see. And another, another point here is, I think if you're looking at a kind of barometer reading on how innovative um, and a certain jurisdiction, or at least its attitudes are, and you can show that the 60, 70 age plus judicial demographic are embracing change and coming up with ideas, that's a pretty darn good sign that, you know, many, many, if not all other demographics within that jurisdiction are similarly minded. You know, if you've got the the uh, the white hairs of the judiciary being willing to change, then I think we can be very sure that in the younger um, uh, demographics, we're seeing exactly the same, probably with even more energy. And t- to close off today's recording, Kenneth, which has been really quite enjoyable, it's a question that I like to pose quite often to my guests, and it's a very simple one. It's if you could somehow give advice to your younger self at the very start of your career, not aging you here at all, Kenneth. I know that even very recently you were named one of the Uganda's 40 under 40. So we're not exactly talking to a, a white hair, as we, we said earlier. But if you could give advice to your younger self at the very start of their career, what would that advice be and why? Hmm. That's a very good question, Tom. And it's, it's difficult to answer because I strongly believe that human beings are a summation of their experiences. There's something in, in uh, there's a term that's called a myriological sum. And I do believe that life or human being, uh, that, that your experiences are, that life is a myriological sum of your experiences. So I don't know if I'd be who I am now if I hadn't gone through everything that I went through. But I do know for a fact that I would have been happier if I'd gone back and told myself and taught myself these three things. One, that everything is impermanent. Number two, that your ego is your biggest blind spot and you need to be careful about that, Kenneth. And number three, that uh, happiness exists in the now, that nirvana exists where and when and how you want it. You don't have to wait for something to happen, a particular set of cataclysmic events to happen and orchestrate happiness for you, that you know, you're happy just where you are. So I think if I had those three 
uh, notions or understanding of life, I think probably I would have been a bit, a much better teenager and a much better younger adult at the time. Well, Kenneth, for someone that showed slightly more reticence in answering that than I've had on with other guests, you kind of blew it out of the water there with some really lovely and thought-provoking advice uh, that I think would be applicable to absolutely anyone, not just a, a young Kenneth. So thank you once again, Kenneth, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. Now, if you are new to the Africa Legal Podcast, be sure to peruse all of our back catalogue, which is available on any major podcast provider, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views, and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal professional. So without further ado, this is Tom Pearson signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast. Thank you.